Hello, my name is Dennis, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. Tom told you everything you need to know. I'm sitting down. Uh, uh, I guess it's a formality, but I always try to remember it, to thank the committee. And I know that the committee is usually a whole bunch of people. And I'm always honored when uh, somebody asks me to do this. Because, you know, there's a lot of people out there. And, um, you know, when I get asked, I say, well, you could have asked so-and-so, but you got me, so here I am. And I always look at the crowd out there, and I'm glad I can't see you all real good now because the lights. But uh, I think of everywhere that I could be and the people that I could be with, and I, I could never pick a finer group of people to, you know, share time with, both people in AA and Al-Anon. I love being around program people. And I'll get in with the, uh, as you say, the nuts and bolts. I was born and raised in Michigan. Um, today is a great sacrifice for me. Uh, today was opening day for Michigan. And... Um, <laughs> Usually at home, I'd be glued in front of my TV, screaming and yelling, go blue. But uh, I managed to peek a little bit at the game today, but between workshops and everything. Uh, not quite as bad as one day when I had to be at an Al-Anon meeting uh, for a state convention. And in Columbus, Ohio, driving through Columbus during the Michigan State-Ohio State, a uh, Michigan-Ohio State game, and that, that, that showed me that uh, I must really love this program because I wasn't watching the game. <laughs> but, um, you know, like I said, grew up in Detroit, and uh, my childhood, when you describe it, somebody would say you had a bad childhood, but I had a good childhood. I don't have any bad memories, uh, you know, as a child. My father went off to World War II. I was born in September of 41, right before Pearl Harbor a little bit, and then he went off to the war. He came home from the war, told my mother he met somebody else over there, and goodbye. So he was gone. So I, I really never knew my father. He wasn't around at all. And so my mother raised my, sis, my older sister and myself. And she worked in the car factories in Detroit. Uh, to the time I was 13, we lived in a public housing project. Uh, the auto workers got a raise. We were informed we were now wealthy and had to move. So we moved right across the street into a little apartment place, never changed schools. I went through 12 schools and 12 years of school in the same building. And my mother worked to put my sister and I uh, through 12 years of Catholic schooling, and that was uh, pretty hard for her to do, I know now, but she did it. But uh, my mother drank her beer uh, and you know, she'd stay at home and have her beer, and when she wasn't home, I knew the neighborhood bar that she would be at. Sometimes I'd go see her there. But I don't ever remember seeing my mother drunk, not once. Uh, she just, you know, she drank beer, but that was it. So alcohol was never a problem when I was a child, and I played a lot of sports, uh, you know, had my buddies I ran around with. So, you know, when you talk, I hear people talk about broken home projects and all that kind of stuff, and they've killed 12 people. I say, well, that... You know, that should be me by all standards, but that's not the way it worked out. Um, got out of school and um, went in the Air Force. I had nothing better to do, didn't have the money to go to college, so uh, 
went in the Air Force, and uh, I was down in uh, Virginia. First time I was away from home, and I went up to Pittsburgh, which is where my mother's from, and I had three uncles there and aunts and uncles' cousins. So I stayed there on a weekend, and one of my cousins said, I'm going to a dance. Would you like to go with me? And I said, sure, I'll go to the dance. So I went off to this dance with her, and she introduced me to two girls that she went to high school with. And then I went back down to Virginia to the base, and people said, how was your weekend? And I said, oh, fine. And I said, went to a dance, met these girls, and they said, well, how are the girls? I said, well, one was so-so, but the other one was gangbusters. I really, like the one I really liked. And uh, a few weeks later, or a month maybe, I went back up to Pittsburgh, and my cousin was on the phone, and she said, this is the girl you met at the dance. So I said, oh, okay. So I got on the phone, I'm talking to her, and I said, you want to go out tonight and go to a movie or something? And she said, yeah. And she gave me directions to her house. So uh, I'm all excited, you know, and I'm going to go pick up gangbusters to go out for the evening. And I go over and I knock on the door and I'm standing there and the door opens and I looked and it was so-so. <laughs> and I thought I was talking to the other girl. And um, so-so is sitting in the audience out there tonight. And they, uh, <laughs> yeah. Her name is Charlene and this past June we were married 44 years. So, uh, so, see, the only reason I'm here is because of a case of mistaken identity is what, what got me here. But, uh, you know, we uh, went back down to the base after being married and, you know, after dating for about a year and a half or so. And uh, we, our first child, Patrick, was born down there in Virginia while we were in the service. Got out, went back to Pittsburgh. Our second son, Paul, was born. And then I had an opportunity to move to Detroit, my hometown, and we moved back there. And we were in Detroit for about three, three and a half years, close to that. And uh, Charlene had a lot of health problems and was on a lot of medications. And I noticed that the pills were going a lot faster than they should. And she was acting kind of weird. So I went to the doctors, and I told them that she was you know, just gulping down all these pills that they had given her. So the doctors cut her off, and I figured, well, that's going to stop that. And a couple of days later, I came home from work, and uh, I walked in, and she was lying on the living room floor, passed out. The, there was something smoldering on the stove that was supposed to be dinner. The two little kids, they were like three and four, they, they were running around the house and I looked around on the floor and I found three empty fifths of scotch and that was day one of alcoholism in our home because when I had her booze cut off she turned to what else was available which was alcohol and I hear people talk about when they come into the program how, you know, they would go to parties and their, their spouse would drink a little too much. And they say, oh, honey, you're, you've had a few too many. You know, I didn't have any break-in period. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that's all I'm going to tell you about her drinking. Because when day one is three-fifths and it goes downhill from there, you don't need to know anymore. <laughs> so uh, we wound up moving back to Pittsburgh because she wanted to be near her family. 
And we thought that's going to fix things. And, of course, those geographic cures don't work. And the same thing continued while we were living in Pittsburgh. And I had a long drive to go to work at one point. I, uh, I worked for a computer manufacturer, and, and when they sold a computer to a customer, my job was to go down and show them how to use it and get the computer running. And I had this long drive to a customer site, about 70 miles. And I would drive down there, and I would be glad to be away from home, and I'd work late, and then I'd have that long drive home. And when, on the way home, I'd be thinking about what I was going to find when I got home. And I'd say, maybe I won't find that today. Maybe it will be different. And I'd think, okay, what am I going to say? And I had my little routines that I would go through, and one of them was the, oh, honey, what have I done that upsets you that made you drink? The other one was, if you do it again, I'm going to break your neck. You know, I'm going to scream, yell, do everything. And I'd, I'd rehearse these things through my, in my head while I was driving home. And then as I pulled into the parking lot to this townhouse apartment that we lived in, um, I'd say, nope, I'm not going to do any, I'm not going to say anything tonight. And I'd go in and I'd find her in her usual condition. And then I'd start to talk to her a little bit. And, and then I'd say, well, I'm just going to say this. And you know what I discovered? You cannot rehearse a tirade for an hour on the road and then just say a little bit. And I would start to say something, and the next thing you know, we would be screaming and yelling at each other. And, you know, and, and, and what I do when things really started getting wild and everything, I said, you know, I'm, I'm getting out of here. And uh, luckily, she did not drive at the time. She didn't get a driver's license until after she was sober. Uh, a lot of people are grateful for that. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I would go out and I would slam that apartment door. You know, our windows would rattle, the apartments next to us would rattle, and I'd get in the car and I'd start the engine, I'd back up and I'd lay rubber going out of the parking lot. And as I would be going out of the parking lot, I would see the curtains part and all the neighbors would be looking out the windows and I'd say, see, now they know what she's done. They didn't know anything about what they what she had done, but they knew who the town idiot was. And, and that was me. And they would have all these little picnics and everything. And we knew they had picnics because when they were going on, we'd look out the window and see them, you know. And, and I'd wonder why we weren't invited. And I knew it was because of her. And, uh, you know, but she wasn't, they never saw her. They just saw me, you know, running all over the place doing crazy things. And then uh, one day I did my I'm leaving thing and. She came out of the house after me and stood next to the car, and she says, you're not leaving this time. And I said, yes, I am. And she says, I got my foot behind the wheel. And I said, I'm leaving. So I put it in reverse and stepped on the gas and felt a little bump, you know. And next thing I know, she's, up, she's got one foot in the air hopping around the parking lot. And uh, so, you know, I'd run over her foot. So I pulled the car back into the parking lot, and, uh, you know, even now, after all those years of sobriety, you know, she has never thanked me for missing her on the way back in. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so, um, so I got her in the house, and she's moaning and groaning about her foot, so I gave her a bucket of hot water to soak it in. And she keeps crying about her foot, and, and then the guilt sets in, and I'm thinking that, gee, you know, maybe it's broke. Maybe I did something to her foot, you know. And I said, okay, I'll take you to the hospital but you can't tell them I rolled over your foot. 
And she said, all right, all right. So we get in the car and we go off to the local hospital and I go in the emergency room and I tell my wife hurt her foot and they give me a wheelchair. And I go out to the car, put her in a wheelchair, and I go up the ramp and those electric eyes, you know, opens the door, those doors part. And I'm wheeling her through the doors and those doors weren't even closed behind us yet. And she is waving her arms and she's yelling, that son of a bitch ran over my foot! And I refer to that as the day all trust was lost, you know, because she, she promised she wasn't going to say anything about that. And the doctors come up to her, and she had been in the emergency room multiple times um, with uh, overdoses and uh, suicide attempts. And uh, the doctors knew her there, and they go, how are you tonight, Charlene? You know, and, and she's yelling about her foot. And the doctor looked at me and just kind of waved his finger like he knew she was nuts. And they never even said anything to me about it. And that's a good thing, because I was trying to figure out, you know, I told her that, you know, she had to tell me she dropped an iron on her foot, and I was trying to figure out what kind of iron lift tread marks, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, and then uh, she was hospitalized for a while, six months, uh, in the funny farm. And I was home with our two boys, and they were like seven and eight years old. And uh, the main thing about that that I remember is that uh, I never asked the neighbors for any help. And I would go to work, and I'd be at work when the kids got out of school, and I'd work late because I was Mr. Important at work. I was the one that everybody relied on to make their computer work. And at work, I had a sense of usefulness. I was worth something because at home, when I walked in that door and the way our home was, I felt that I was a total failure. I felt that I was a failure as a husband and as a father and that if I was, you know, since I couldn't fix it, I couldn't make things right, that I was failing. I I knew I should be able to do something. I just didn't know what it was. But at work, I felt like I was a success and I was doing something. So even with my kids home alone, I worked late. And I'd get home and walk in the house with a bag of hamburgers, and they'd be half asleep and everything. And I'd wake them up and feed them their hamburgers or whatever it was and get them in bed. And I couldn't go to somebody and say, my wife drinks too much and she's in a hospital. Uh, because they would say, why don't you do something about it? When I was date, um, when I was growing up with my, just my mother and my older sister, uh, when it got to the time when I would start to date, I remember my mother sat me down and had a little talk with me and told me that you know be a good boy, you know the birds and the bees, and you know, and she said, when you grow up and you have a family, you are responsible. And I think she was trying to instill in me a feeling of responsibility that maybe my father did not have. And I can remember the day after we were married. And the next, you know, we were in a restaurant having our first breakfast as husband and wife. And the check came to pay for the breakfast. And I picked it up and I looked at the bill and I looked across the table at her. And I can still remember it. This was June 3rd, 1962. And the thought came into my mind. I said, this is not a date. This is different. We're married. And that feeling of, I grew up, I had a family, 
I was responsible. So when our home life was a complete shambles and everything was falling apart, I felt that I was responsible. I have to do something about this, and I couldn't do it. I didn't know what to do. And I was too embarrassed to go ask anybody for help. Our kids survived that. I think some of the neighbors may have helped without me asking. And one time she got out of the hospital on a weekend pass, and uh, we were riding around somewhere, uh, and the usual happened, you know. She said hello, I said hello, and then we had a fight. And um, we were screaming and yelling at each other, and you know, she hopped out of the car. So I slowed down. And... Uh, and uh, and uh, and then she was running around the street, and uh, she, we were right by the cemetery. And she ran through the gates of the cemetery into the cemetery. And I drove the car around. I drove into the cemetery and got out of the car, and we're chasing her through the cemetery. And I, I you know, nice football fan. You know, I made a perfect flying tackle. You know, right on top of somebody's dearly departed. And. Uh, and I had her arms pinned down, and I'm holding her down on the ground, and look over to the side, and there were four or five guys, whatever, and they were digging a grave. And they looked, turned around, and they looked at us, and their eyes were as big as silver dollars, you know. And she had that hospital wristband on. So I grabbed her wrist, and I'm waving it up in the air, and I'm yelling, she's crazy. You know, but don't ask me what I'm doing here. <laughs> and, 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 you know, this was our marital bliss. You know, this is the way we were going. So that went on for about three and a half years in Pittsburgh. And uh, then we thought that maybe another change of scenery would do. And we wound up moving to uh, Falls Church, Virginia. And... The same thing went on, of course. And, you know, the lunacy continued. And I would be sitting at home at night, and I would usually, but you know, in the evening, she was totally passed out. And I'd be looking at her passed out, and uh, I would be thinking, how long is this going to be, go on? When will this end? And I can remember the night that I answered the question. And I said, it won't. This is the way it's going to be. I couldn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I said, this is it. And watching TV, my favorite TV show at the time was Star Trek, the original Star Trek. And my favorite character was Mr. Spock. And the reason I liked Mr. Spock was because he was the man with no emotions. He was the Vulcan and had no human emotions. And I would look at him and I would say, if I was like him, I wouldn't feel the way I do. I wouldn't hurt. I wouldn't have the anger. I wouldn't have all the resentments. I wouldn't have the feelings of, you know, know, just futility, hopelessness, everything that I felt. I said, I wouldn't feel that way if I was like him. So I worked on becoming Mr. Spock. And I worked on trying to block out all emotions. And my kids were at the age, or our kids were at the age now, where they were getting into Little League Baseball. And I volunteered to be a help coach the team, another reason just to stay out of the house. 
And we, one day I came home from work, and it was game day. And the kids were standing by the door, and they had their game uniforms on. And I said, you get in the car. I'm going to go in and see Mommy, and then we'll go to the game. Of course, what I meant was I'm going to go in and check on Mommy and see what's happening, you know, how she is today. And I went in, and I looked around, and I went back in the bedroom, and I found her lying on the bed. And there were a bunch of empty bottles, both alcohol and pills. And there was a note on the nightstand. And first I leaned over and to her, and I could barely, barely hear, you know, feel a breath that she was breathing. And I picked up the note that was on the nightstand. And I remember it as though I was reading it yesterday. And that note said, you and the kids will be better off without me. And I, things like this had happened before. And I had done the same thing that, I started to do the same thing that I'd done before. And that's pick up the phone and start dialing for the rescue squad. And I started to dial and I stopped. And I'd read that note again. You and the kids will be better off without me. And I said, she's right. Because remember, I had answered that question, when will this end? And I knew it wasn't going to end. It was going to go on and on like this. And I said, this is the way it's going to end. And I put that phone down. I put the note back on the nightstand. And I said, nobody will even know I'm in here. And I turned around, walked out, and closed that bedroom door behind me. I got in the car, and I said, come on, kids, let's go to the game. And I went off, and I coached that Willow League game. And after the game, the kids and us came home, and they were hot and sweaty, and they wanted to go in and get something to drink. And I said, oh, go tell the neighbor kids you know, over here about how the game was, because I didn't want them to go in and try to tell Mommy about what the game was because I thought that it was over. And I went in and went back to the bedroom, and she was still breathing. And she was you know, breathing a little better than she was before. And it took her a couple of days, really, to come out of that, from all the booze and all the pills she had taken. But I had reached the point of total hopelessness, that there is nothing that's going to change the way our life is other then she succeeds in one of these attempts. And I didn't know what else to do other than let it be. This is the way it's going to be. I'm extremely grateful that my higher power had other plans for us, that it did not work out that way. But things went downhill pretty quick after that because I gave up the screaming and the yelling and the arguing. And, uh, you know, it got to a point where um, she, she wound up going into the hospital and was introduced to AA, went to a couple meetings, and then didn't go anymore. And one day, a lady that she met in AA came over to see how she was doing. And what she found was her sitting in a chair with a blanket wrapped around her and me spoon-feeding her something out of a bowl because she couldn't even feed herself. And... The lady came in and looked at her, and she said, don't you know she's dying? I didn't know. I, my, you know, the computer genius's brain was jello. 
as far as this was, I, I, I didn't have a thought. I couldn't figure out what to do. So uh, it was taken out of my hands. Uh, the gal got on the phone, called some other guy in AA. He came over. And all I remember is, what, you know, he'd fit in here. He had a cowboy hat and cowboy boots on. And he came in, and the gal grabbed a, a bag of some sort, threw some of Charmaine's clothes in it. The guy picked Charmaine up and carried her out. And they got in the car and took her off to a, to a hospital. And I stayed home with the kids. I literally gave my wife to AA. They took her away to somewhere. I didn't know where they were going, but I said, you, you know, you want her? You can have her. And, uh, and, uh, and she wound up going to this, uh, hospital and then they took, the lady in AA told us about a treatment center and she wound up going there and, and, uh, she was in there and they told me that, uh, I could visit her and to be out there on Sunday afternoon about 1 o'clock, you know, a little before 1. So I went out to this treatment center on Sunday afternoon, a little before 1, and I said, you know, I'm here to visit her. And they said, well, you can't see her until a little bit after 2. And I said, well, why? And they said, because she's in an AA meeting over there from 1 to 2. And I said, well, you told me to be here before 1, and I came to visit her. And they said, well, to visit her, you got to go in that room first. And I said, what's in that room? And they said, you go in and find out. <laughs> so I went into this room, and there was a guy at you know, the head of the table, and there were all the other family members of the inmates. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, we, and it, it was an institutional Al-Anon meeting, and a guy was doing the meeting. And... What he said, you know, I, I, I remember it exactly now, and um, I'll share it with you, what he said at, during that meeting. He said that you have to get a mental picture in your mind of the alcoholic. Just close your eyes and get this picture of the person. And as you're looking at that person, The the shape seems to quiver a little bit and move, and something moves off to the side and comes out of that body. And now there's two things there. And what came out is the bottle. And what you're looking at is the alcoholic and the alcoholism. And what you have to do is separate the person from the disease. And he said that all those actions, the things that she did, were not her. They were the symptoms of her illness. And to show you how impressed I was with that, I stood up and announced to everybody else in the room that he was crazy. And with that, I walked out and did my slam-the-door routine, the slam-the-door of the room. And that was my first Al-Anon meeting. But they told me I had to come back, you know, next week if I wanted to have visiting privileges. So I came back. And I literally came back, started coming back to Al-Anon for visiting privileges. And I went to the meetings out there. And after the treatment center, she informed me she wasn't coming home. She was going to a halfway house with alcoholic women. And I said, for how long? She said, I don't know. And to show her how supportive I was, I said, give me the address, and when you get there, all your clothes will be on the doorstep and everything. Because I figured she had the 30-day cure, 
now come home and be the good wife, the good mother that she should have always been. And I was upset that she wasn't doing that. So she went off to this treatment, I mean, not a treatment center, but a halfway house. And a lady named Marge was the house mother who ran the place. And Marge had five or six years in sober at the time. And there were maybe six or seven gals in the house. And I would go out there and uh, see her on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, she'd say hello. I'd say hello. We'd fight. And Marge would kick me out. And one time I went out and I, I drove away and I came back and I walked up the sidewalk and I had bought a bouquet of flowers. And i standing at the door with this bouquet of flowers and Marge is looking out through the little window in the door and just, I could, couldn't hear her, but I could see the, read the, you know, lip read the words, go away. <laughs> and she wouldn't let me back in. So I went home and I got on the phone and I called the, the place and I got Marge on the phone. And uh, I told her that, uh, you know, she wasn't going to stop me from seeing my wife. And, uh, she, you know, I just might come out there and do something like break all the windows or burn the place down. And uh, I accused her of trying to break up our happy marriage. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, Charmaine had the good sense not to come home for about 11 months. And... Uh, and during that time, though, I was going to Al-Anon, and, uh, you know, things started to calm down a little bit. And eventually, uh, she came home, and uh, we started to try to make a life of it in recovery in this program. Neither one of us knew if it would work. Marge's foot was firmly planted in her backside and mine, and... Uh, we were told that we had to give it a try. And we started to go to meetings, and we were told that uh, don't even sit in the same room with each other in the evening. So she would sit in one room and read the big book. I'd sit in another room, read the al literature. Uh, we'd get in the car, drive to a meeting. We went to where there were both meetings, AE and al you know, to, in each room. And then on the way home, I'd turn to her and I'd say, what was your meeting about? And, and she'd tell me. And she'd say, what was your meeting about? And I'd tell her. And the first thing that we could talk about without a fight was, what was your meeting about? And that fell right in line with what an old-timer in my meeting told me. Name, name is Mary. And... Uh, before I went to this one particular meeting, I'd gone to several other meetings, and one guy said, I'm going to take you to the best Al-Anon meeting in town. And he took me to this meeting on a Tuesday night in Tacoma Park, Maryland, the Brightwood Tuesday night meeting. And he said, this is the best meeting. And I went in there, and I'm sitting there looking around, and I said, Bob, are we in the right place? And he said, yeah, this is it. And the reason I asked him the question was because Bob and I were the only white people in the room. We were surrounded by a bunch of, you know, African-American little women. And I started to listen, and, and that group became my home group. And I found out that this was real black belt Al-Anon. <laughs> uh, 
and it was a step meeting, and every week was on the steps. And Mary was kind of like the, the, the real guru of the group, the old-timer. And uh, her husband, Harry, was in the AA group. And I got to like to listen to what Mary said. And, and Mary is, was a, you know, a black lady. Uh, Mary was my first sponsor. And I was looking for my twin, somebody just like me, my same background. I was 32 years old, and Mary is a 60-year-old black lady. We fit perfectly. <laughs> and, uh, and then, um, but I wanted to sit near her, and Mary would sit on one side of the table one week, so the next week I'd come in, I'd sit there. And Mary and her little group would walk in, and they'd be over on the other side of the table. So the other week I'd go, and I'd go on that side of the table. And every week they'd sit somewhere else, and I was having trouble catching up with Mary. And then we had a group anniversary, and Mary t- said to me, she said, now I'm going to have you do something real important at the anniversary. And I said, oh, what? You know, I'm thinking, they want me to talk? What? You know, I had never given a lead in my life, you know. They'd been in less than a year. And she said, no, I'll let you know when. So we had this sit-down dinner, and everybody's eating on paper plates and everything, and then Mary gives me a wave, and I go over to her. And uh, she says, now here. And she gives me this big green plastic garbage bag. And I walk down between the tables, and the people will drop their dirty plates in it. <laughs> and that was my first service job. <laughs> and uh, after the meeting, Mary and I were talking, and she said to me, she said, you've come a long way. And I said, well, I don't, you know, I didn't recognize any change in myself, but, of course, other people see you, and they do recognize changes. And when I first got to Al-Anon, there was no difference between my face and a tomato. I mean, I was, my face was beat red. I was so angry and so mad all the time. And Mary looked at me, and she said, you know, I was raised in the ghetto, and I was raised around guys with criminal records as long as your arm. But I was never afraid of a man in my life until you came into our meeting. That's why I couldn't catch her. (laughs) But when that meeting ended every week and we held hands and said the serenity prayer and after the, the Lord's prayer and after the Lord's prayer, We said, keep coming back. It gets better. A lot of those ladies were physically afraid of me when I came into their meeting because I was so angry and my face was just red all the time. But every week they told me, come back. And I don't think there's any place other than this program where you will find unconditional love like that. And they kept telling me to come back. And that group was uh, our home group uh, for about three and a half years. And then my job situation, I had a job offer. I I left the job I was at, took a job that was terrible. I didn't like it. And then God stepped in and gave me an opportunity for a pretty good job uh, in Dayton, Ohio. And we literally asked permission to move. We asked Marge, we asked Mary, we talked to both of them, and they said, you have enough program with you. 
you can take it to Ohio. And if they had said no, I would have turned the job down and stayed because we were at the point we did what they told us to do. Because that it, we didn't know anything else to do, you know, and they were the ones who guided us and got us to where, you know, we were trying to kill each other every day. So it was 1977, uh, and uh, we were coming to Dayton, Ohio. Uh, yeah, and by the way, that, that uh, meeting in the treatment center where I lasted about 10 minutes and walked out, uh, that was February 3rd, 1974, and I consider that my Al-Anon anniversary. So, uh, so we moved to uh, Dayton. Well, actually, we came for a house signing trip and looked at places and, and went to a couple meetings. And I found out about the Ohio State Al-Anon Conference. It was held at Denison University, Little East of Columbus. And it just happened that the conference was the weekend between my jobs. I ended work in Washington on uh, mon on Friday, and I was starting work in Dayton on Monday. So Friday, I left and I drove and I came to Ohio, and I pulled into Denison University and walked in and registered, and I spent the weekend at the Ohio State Al-Anon Conference with 500 and so Al-Anons. And by the time I got, that, I got to Dayton, I'd already met a bunch of people from meetings in you know, that I would be going to in Dayton, Ohio. I made Al-Anon friends before I even got to town, you know. And um, I went to a group Monday night, and then on Tuesday night I went to Tuesday night Centerville, uh, and that group is still my home group tonight. I've been going to there ever since then in 1977. And there were people there that had been at the state conference. So I had friends before I ever made it to my new town. And we started to get to know some people. We missed our friends in D.C. terribly. The people who knew us and loved, you know, when we were brand new and loved us anyways. And we didn't think we would ever have friends like that again. But, of course, as time goes on and we met new friends and we started to fit in with the people there. And I got involved in um, service as a um, uh, a group representative and went off to the Ohio Area Assembly. And then we uh, had our district meeting and uh, I wound up being elected district representative. So we're off to a state assembly and it's election time. And there was an old timer named Peggy uh, who was my replacement for Mary. She was, you know, been in a long time, and, and I, I loved her dearly. And Peggy was sitting next to me at assembly, and we had elections. And a, a lady from Youngstown was elected delegate. And then they had the DR stand up who would be willing to serve as alternate delegate. And nobody stood up. And I didn't know what was going on, but nobody, nobody was standing up. And all of a sudden, I had a terrible pain. That's because Peggy's elbow was embedded in my ribs, and she wham, and she. And I said, "What are you doing?" And she said, "You can do that." And I said, "What am I going to do?" And she said, "If the delegate can't go to New York, you, you go instead. For it's a week. You can do that." I said, "I guess maybe I could." So I raised my hand, 
Nobody else did. I stood up, and I was unanimously elected. Uh, and uh, so I was in Ohio 14 months, and I was their alternate delegate. And uh, so uh, that I was alternate delegate for two years, and then in the third year, um, this was uh, 1981, I got a call from the lady in Youngstown who said that uh, she was going to have surgery and could not make the conference. And I had to go as her alternate. I was terrified. I mean, you know, it's like the vice president. You know, you, look, you sit around and you got nothing to do unless the president dies, you know. And, and, but all, all of a sudden I'm told, you know, you got to go. And there was a pre-conference delegates meeting in Chicago, and I, I tooled off there, and I met a bunch of other delegates and everything, and and then uh, when time came, I got on an airplane, and I flew to New York in 1981 for the al World Service Conference as the alternate from Ohio. And what a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, we talk in our readings about, you know, al as a whole. And what I found at the World Service Conference was the fellowship as a whole. Not just how we do it in Dayton or how we do it in Virginia, but how we do it in Colorado, how we do it in California, how we do it in Florida, um, what works, what doesn't work. And I went back after the conference. Oh, can't omit this. I got to the hotel in New York I checked in, and I'm walking around like a lost sheep, and this little old lady comes by, and she says, are you here for the conference? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm the, you know, the delegate or alternate from Ohio. And she said, well, you know, the conference didn't start until the next day. And she said, we're having an al meeting over here. You want to go? I said, yeah. So I went over and sat down at the meeting, and it wasn't until about three-fourths of the way through the meeting that I realized that the little old lady who grabbed me in the lobby and took me into the room was Lois W. So literally, the first person I met in New York was our co-founder, Lois. And uh, so I went back after the conference and made up the conference report and gave it at the area assembly, and I traveled around to Toledo and Columbus and Cleveland and Youngstown and Cincinnati to all the major cities. And they, the groups all got together to hear the report, the people who had, didn't attend the assembly. And um, then in the fall, we had our elections. And this time, candidates for the de- delegate came out of the woodwork. There were about six or seven people who had been at the assembly for a lot of years, I mean, a long time. And we had the election, and, you know, the third or fourth ballot, whatever it was, um, they called my name the required number of times, and the chairman said, we have a delegate. And I just sat there and thought, looked, and I put my hands to my face. I said, these lunatics don't know what they've done. And uh, I was selected the panel 22 delegate from Ohio. And after the conference, I went home, and I told Charlene, and I said, i got to make a phone call. And I picked up the phone, and I called Marilyn, and I, t- I called Marge, her first sponsor in AA. And I told her what had happened. And Marge laughed, and she said, I knew if you stuck with it, you'd finally get this program. <laughs> 
And um, uh, so I had the opportunity to go to three more World Service Conferences as delegate. So I actually attended four of them. And, of course, at each conference, uh, our co-founder, Lois W., was there and had the opportunity to go to Stepping Stones two of those years and to sit at Bill W.'s desk and look at the book there with the pictorial depiction of the 12 steps. Somebody had made this up for them, and it's on his desk there in the little house away from the main house. And uh, look at all, all their the memories and all, all the things there from the early days of the program. Um, to meet people like Henrietta Sutcliffe, who was the first volunteer at the World Service Office, um, and, and a lot of the early people who helped get the World Service Office in Al-Anon going. Uh, it was just an amazing, wonderful adventure. And I was sitting there in Lois's front room at, at Stepping Stones and talking to Lois, and she's sitting in a chair, and Lois had a uh, cup of coffee, and she reached over for the coffee, and t- it tilted, and it spilled. Well, immediately there were about 12 people around with napkins and everything. Everybody's cleaning up the coffee. And then I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there next to Lois, and I said, Lois, you know what this means, don't you? And she said, what? And I said, when I get back to Ohio, I have to tell everybody that you're not perfect. And she laughed, and she chuckled, and she said, please do that. She said, so many people put me on a pedestal. And, and she held my hand, and she said, you know, anybody can start a movement. That doesn't make them special. The special people are the ones who keep it going. And I have to tell you that all you folks here who worked so hard on this convention and all of you who put your nickels and dimes away and and buy high-priced gas to drive here so this convention will be a success are keeping it going, and you're the special ones. That's straight from Lois. So the uh, you know time as delegate was it was a hard job, uh, a lot of work, but I think that for every ounce of effort I put into it, I got ten pounds of benefit from. I've never had a service job in this program that I felt I got anything less than ten times what I put into it, because working with The people who are involved in service is sticking with the winners. And I was told that when I was real new, to stick with the winners. That doesn't mean that people who aren't heavily involved in service aren't winners. You're a winner if you set up coffee before the meeting. You're a winner if you help clean up after the meeting. You're a winner if you volunteer the chair meeting on a regular basis. You're a winner if you attend regularly, because i got news for you. If new people today are just like I was when I was brand new, and they like to hear the old-timers, they like to hear the regular, the, the people they see every week, 
Because what I found out was when I heard their stories and knew where they came from, I realized that they were not always as happy and smiling as they were now. That at one point in their life, they were just as miserable as I was. But what I could see was they weren't that way anymore. And that gave me hope that one day I might be like them and not as angry and, and you know, as, you know, full of, of all the bad feelings that I had when I was new to the program. So, you know, a lot of things you can do to win in this program. And it always, you know, pleases me when I, you know, see people doing those kind of things. The years after I was delegate, um, I, I continued to be involved in the uh, assembly uh, somewhat. Uh, I was uh, treasurer of the assembly. Uh, later, I was uh, chairman of the budget committee. Um, they asked me one time several years ago to fill out a resume and send it in to be a trustee. And I knew that that wouldn't be the right thing to do because of the time requirements. Um, I worked for somebody else. I couldn't have all that time off that's required. And there was a guy in our assembly who I had worked with. We co-chaired the Avalon participation in AA Five State Regional. And I said, you know, he's a good service guy. He's in service a lot. Why don't you ask him and let him try it? And they did. They sent his name in. And uh, today he's the executive director of the World Service Office, or Rick B. <laughs> and Rick and I worked on several projects at the Ohio Area Assembly. And when I turned it down, we sent Rick's name in. And today he is the executive director of the World Service Office. And I went down to uh, Virginia Beach uh, at the end of April for the Al-Anon 55th anniversary celebration and saw Rick and several of the people from WSO, a lot of them there that was there when I was delegate, got to meet a lot of old friends. And I was talking to people and telling them this story, saying, yeah. And they, they said, it could have been you. And I said, nope, God made the right choice. That wasn't for me. But I still love service work. As Tom said in the introduction, um, my computer background, I, I put it to work with the uh, Torch Service. I, about five or six years ago, I started the Dayton Al-Anon website. I went to the state assembly and uh, said, we need this for the state. And they said, okay, we'll approve it and pay for it if you do it. And I said, okay, I will. So I'm the webmaster of the Ohio uh, Area Assembly official website, as well as the Dayton website. And... I get emails from people, and they, 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 their hearts bleed in the email. And they say, you know, my, my husband, my daughter, my wife, my son, you know, is drinking and this and that. Uh, do you think Al-Anon can help me? And, you know, I don't play, try to play Dear Abby, on, you know, uh, or, you know, Mr. Al-Anon Guru. I just send back and say, yes, I think Al-Anon's for you. Check the schedule on the web. Get to a meeting as soon as you can. And I love it when I'm in a meeting and somebody says, uh, this is my first meeting. And, and you know, I was trying to find what to do, and I went to the website, and it said there was a meeting here tonight. And I'm, I just sit there thinking that, you know, 
I have gratitude that it's helping people, that people actually do find meetings through the web, and it's a great resource for doing that. And it, it pleases me when somebody comes in and they say that's how they found the meeting. I do a uh, beginner's meeting. I do number two. It's on the first step. Every six weeks I do, uh, you know, the meeting on the, the, second, the second meeting on the first step. You know, the, there's six beginner meetings, and this is number two. And during the course of the meeting, I usually tell them a story at some point about my first meeting. And this is near the end of the meeting, and I tell them that none of you have broken my record yet. You've lasted longer than I did. You know, and nobody got up during one of my beginner meetings and yelled and screamed that I was crazy and left the room. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, my wife is not the only alcoholic in my family. Um, our two sons both uh, have the problem. And my oldest son, Patrick, uh, his flared up very visibly during my third year at the World Service Conference. And I put him into a treatment center the day before I flew off to New York. Uh, that I'm sure I'm screaming, I have to do something with him. I can't leave town and leave her with him, you know, so we got him into this treatment center. Um, he, he went into the uh, institution of the month club. He went into three different places in three months. And then he had a uh, suicide attempt, took a lot of stuff. And we got a call from his girlfriend, and they, I said, get him in the car, get him to the hospital, we'll meet you there. And we went over to the local hospital and emergency room, and he was lying on a gurney, and they were pumping his stomach, trying to get this stuff all out of his stomach. And I had flashbacks to when I was watching my wife on a table like that, and they were doing that to her. And when my wife was in that situation, I was screaming at her and calling her names and yelling at her. And now she was standing next to me, and I put my arm around her and gave her a hug, and I said, no matter how this turns out, we can get through this. We can get through this with our higher power. We can get through this with our friends in the program. And fortunately, he pulled through that, and he went to AA for six or seven years and then didn't go anymore. But he's still sober today. He has 23 years sober. He just hasn't gone to AA in a number of years, but he hasn't had a drink in 23 years. Our other son, our, our other son, Paul, is one year younger. Uh, he was 42 in January. And if he makes it about another eight or nine days, he will get his one year token. Paul was a long haul, and we were. He had. He also had the problem with cocaine. Uh, there were times when we definitely thought we were going to lose him to that. There were times when we were going to go to Pittsburgh and walk in and take our granddaughter out of that home and take her to Dayton, Ohio, because both my son and his wife were on cocaine, and situation was not good. Uh, our granddaughter would come to our house, and she was very little. She was four or five years old at the time. And uh, she would uh, walk into the kitchen, and there would be a uh, plate of cookies there. 
And next thing you know, we'd hear tears. And she would be just sobbing and crying. Can I have a cookie? And she's crying in tears. And I said, honey, you don't have to cry to get a cookie. All you have to do is take one or ask. And finally, I realized that the reason she cried was because that's what she had to do at home with her mother and father the way they were. And the only way she could get attention was to have tears and get their attention. And she had a, a lot of hard time from that environment. But uh, a good thing happened. Uh, they divorced. And uh, that was actually a good thing for both of them. And uh, our ex-daughter-in-law is remarried. Uh, Paul has a, a, a girlfriend he lives with. And, uh, you know, and they're all very happy now. And our granddaughter, whose name is Charlene, she's named after Grandma, uh, has recovered a whole lot from that, pretty much, I think. Uh, we do a lot with her. Every summer, we take her on a trip. And this year, uh, we went up to Boston. Uh, we did the Freedom Trail. Last year was Williamsburg. And, and uh, we take her somewhere every summer. And we went to Boston. And then we left Boston. And we took an hour and a half, two-hour drive north from Boston up to Portland, Maine, because that's where Marge lives. And we visited Marge. And she's still a big part of our life. And we get to visit her whenever we can. Uh, we go to Florida in winter now that I'm retired, and Marge goes to Florida, and she's about three hours from where we stay. And this past winter, we went over there twice. We spent two weekends over there. And uh, I will forever be grateful for people like her and Mary that uh, were there when we were new and uh, helped us along. At the uh, Al-Anon 55th anniversary in Virginia Beach, I was... Uh, standing in line for the Parade of Nations, I volunteered to hold up a, a banner with a country name on it. And I took the name Estonia. And the reason I did was when they called it out was, we had some friends in AA in Washington from Estonia. And one time they gave us tickets to the Bolshoi Ballet, appearing at the Kennedy Center, Du Swan Lake. We'd never been to a ballet and we went down to the Bolshoi and saw Rudolf Noyev and, and all this stuff. And then just so how high class we were afterwards, we went to dinner at IHOP. And, uh, and um, I didn't know where any other place was, so we wound up at IHOP. But uh, I remembered our friends in AA from Estonia. So, I, uh, okay, I'll carry this for them. And I'm standing in line. We're waiting to parade into the banquet room. And I was telling people about this story about my friends from Washington. And not the lady in front of me, but the lady right in front of her. She was in a black lady. And she says, you were in the program in Washington? And I said, yeah. And I said, my home group was Brightwood Tuesday night. And her eyes opened up and she looked. She said, that's my home group. And we hugged like we were old friends. And she said, when were you there? And I told her, she said, you must have known Mary L. And I said, yeah, Mary was my sponsor. And I asked how Mary was doing, and she's 92 years old now, and uh, she's in a nursing home, and uh, she has Alzheimer's and doesn't know anybody hardly, but, you know, she's still breathing. And, and I said, yeah, I was good friends with Mary and Vera. And she jumped up again, and she said, Vera's here. And Vera was another lady that was there when I was brand new. So after we did the Parade of Nations thing and everything, I found this gal, and she led me over to the table where, where Vera was. 
And the last time I saw Vera was on the floor of the Astrodome at the 1980 International. And we ran across the floor and gave each other a big hug, and we did it again in Virginia Beach this past April. But because I, I will never forget the people who were afraid of me and loved me anyways and told me to keep coming back. I love this program. I love what it has done for my whole family. Um, it's a real treat with my youngest son because he's had a long haul. He's 42 years old, and like I say, if he makes it another couple weeks, he'll have his first year of sobriety. Uh, we were in Pittsburgh a few weeks ago, and he said, I've got my 10 or 11 one-month tokens. And he says, and when I get number 12, I'm, I'm going to have a frame put up, and I'm going to have them all framed on the wall. And that's how excited he is about getting one year, because he hasn't had one year since ever. He started drinking when he was in junior high. And uh, this would be the longest time he's ever had off of alcohol or drugs. And uh, we're very hopeful for him and very, you know, excited about it. Things work in God's time. And, you know, even though there were many times I thought I was going to lose my wife to this disease, I thought I was going to lose both of my children to this disease. And they're all still here, and we still are a family. And it's only because of this program. I have a plaque at home that I got from Charlene on her second anniversary. I, I saw it in the store and I liked it and I thought it expressed what the program was about. And I still have that plaque at home. And what this plaque says is learn from yesterday. Live for today. Dream of tomorrow. I can learn from yesterday. I heard Heidi and Gary last night at the meeting here yesterday. And when I listen to people in the program, I always learn. It says live for today. That's what this program is all about, one day at a time. This is the only day I can live for. And it says, dream of tomorrow. And I can remember when they said, keep coming back. Things get better. And things got better. And I know that if I continue working this program and sticking around all you people, my tomorrows will be better. And that is so much different than when I first walked through the doors of my first Alamon meeting, where I regret it yesterday. I hate it today. But worst of all, I feared tomorrow. Tomorrow was going to be even worse. But thanks to my higher power, thanks to AA, and thanks to Alanon and all of you, I don't have to live that way anymore. And for that, I will forever be grateful, and I love you. Thank you.